Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. November. Fall is in full swing. The leaves are changing, turning some forested areas into the most beautiful landscapes. And for us in the United States, Thanksgiving will soon be here. A time for family, friends, togetherness, and giving thanks for what we have before preparing to fight hordes of people for a discounted TV the next day. All right, maybe that's a little dramatic. It's just one big horde. <laughs> oh, I forgot one of the most important parts of Thanksgiving. Food. And that's our theme for the month, festive food. I think I should try to make more themes alliterative. Just think about all the ways food is involved in our lives. How many celebrations and big events, both happy and sad, include food as an expected aspect. It's everywhere, including our Thanksgiving, which is perhaps most recognized by the traditional meal. Well, we're not the only ones in history who made food part of various festivities. Now, of course, the theme regarding food by itself would be much too big for one month. We're talking about a necessity going all the way back to humanity's earliest ancestors. So I'm going to focus on the use of food in these events and festivities alone. Along the way, I'll give some background on the food itself, especially in cases where it highlights how important or significant it was. Sometimes the consumption of certain foods was tied to traditions, religion, and other factors beyond eating what's necessary. As with the other themes, we'll start in the ancient Greco-Roman world. This time we'll be focusing on Greece. We'll also journey to the Ottoman Empire and Africa before returning to the United States. We're going to see a couple different types of events here. In Greece, religion plays a big part of life. So big, in fact, that they didn't have a word for it. They had priests, but not a clergy. The priests only looked out for the cults following various gods. They also had no sacred books. Religion just existed. It was an ever-present part of life. The closest terms to it were Eusebia, meaning piety, and Threscea, meaning cult. To my knowledge, there were few known atheists among the ancient Greeks. And even for those who were atheists, there was no real enforcement to try and make them convert to belief in the gods. For future reference, I want to clarify something about Greek religion and Greek myth. The two terms are very closely intertwined, and often you'll hear the term mythology as an all-encompassing term for Greek beliefs. From what I've learned through my research, that's not quite accurate. In using religion, even though it was a word they didn't have, we refer to the practices and rituals as well as the belief in the gods. Myths are stories explaining the environment, natural phenomena, explaining where the gods came from, even retellings of history so they remain connected to it. Given a lack of orthodoxy among the ancient Greeks, it isn't surprising to learn that belief in the various myths was not universal. Just like with modern religion, some were skeptical of some myths while they believed in others. Even the term myth refers to a traditional story, not just a false idea. Myths were very closely intertwined with religion, but religion itself wasn't mythology. 
Hopefully that all made sense. It's easy to confuse the two, but an important distinction to keep in mind both today and going forward. What was required of the ancient Greeks was simple enough. Believe the gods exist, perform rituals, and perform sacrifices. We're going to look at some of these to find the food for our theme. When looking at Athens, several days were set aside every month for various festivals. Like us, they had 12 months. Though these months ran from one new moon to the next, and were in fact specific to festivals. There were other calendars in the ancient Greek world, even within Athens itself. As you might have guessed, this calendar wasn't consistent. The position of the months shifted each year, sometimes by as much as an entire month. So we can only estimate where these months were, compared to our own, with a two-month range for each. But this calendar wasn't about laying out a consistent set of days, weeks, and months. There were other calendars for that. This was about their many festivals and sacrifices. And, of course, the food we'll find there. We already mentioned one last month, Anthesteria, the festival dedicated to Dionysus. Appropriately, this was in the month Anthesterion. See how that works? If you remember, the significant food, or rather drink, was wine. The opening and drinking of wine was the central focus. Right there is our first festive food. It wasn't the only time they had wine, but it was a special occasion with different drinking practices. It was a festival. This is the idea our theme is centered around this month. Looking into these festivals, we'll often encounter animal sacrifices in some form. As Anthesteria demonstrates, not all festivals involved animal sacrifice. For those that did, the sacrifices tended to follow a general pattern during this time. This time meaning Classical Greece, the period within ancient Greece spanning from the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. We look to Homer and his Odyssey for a description of this sacrificial pattern. He writes of a heifer being sacrificed with Athena in attendance. This particular heifer was given gold to gild her horns, though this wasn't part of the general pattern of sacrifice and was for the goddess's benefit alone. Once the heifer was in place, the men involved in the sacrifice would first wash their hands, ensuring their own cleanliness before beginning. Next, they picked up sacrificial barley grains and said their prayers. Then they threw the grains over the animal that was about to be sacrificed. Apparently, this was a symbolic slaying of the animal before the real one took place. In this description, they also cut some hair from the heifer's head and cast it into the fire as an initial offering. Interestingly, there is some belief among scholars that the animal was next expected to ascent, or at least appear to ascent, before being sacrificed. For example, they might look for the animal to give a nod, or at least what they interpret as a nod. However, this does not appear in Homer's description. For a larger animal like this, someone would use an axe to strike the animal in the back of the neck, weakening her. For a large animal, this was likely necessary to keep it still and carry out the sacrifice. Homer wrote that at this moment, the women in attendance raised a ritual cry, another part that may not have been found in all sacrifices since not all animals require this. The animal's head was then lifted by some of the men while another slit its throat. After the blood flowed and the animal died, they proceeded to skin it and carve it into pieces. Being that this is a sacrifice involving at least one god, you might find this next part curious. 
They cut out the bad parts of the animal. Bones, sinew, and other similar parts were wrapped up and burned as the offering to the gods. Not what you'd expect, is it? Well, there's a myth to go with it. Zeus had angrily bound Prometheus in chains, leaving an eagle to eat his liver every day. Every day the liver regrew, and the eagle ate it again, until Heracles came along and freed him. Wanting Heracles' glory to grow, Zeus didn't object and even ceased being angry at Prometheus. However, Prometheus played a trick on him. At a gathering of gods and men intended to determine who got what parts of a sacrifice, he sacrificed an ox and prepared two servings. In one, he hid the entrails and all the edible parts inside the ox's gross-looking stomach. In the other, he placed the bones and inedible parts, which were then wrapped in fat so that it looked like a bigger and more appealing serving. He then told Zeus to pick one. Zeus chose the latter, as Prometheus intended. Because of this trick, it was decided humans get to keep the good meat and the gods got the bad. This is known as the trick at Mekone, which is only one part of a much larger myth. And, given how Prometheus managed to trick Zeus into letting humans keep all the good meat, it's often part of Greek comedy. Certainly it was an irony that wasn't lost on anyone. And for us, it means these sacrifices and the festival they're a part of make it into this theme. In a sense, you could say that this is the theme being represented in myth, with the gods receiving this food, such as it is, on the day of sacrifice. So we've had the sacrifice and the bad parts have been given to the gods. The entrails were then cooked. The good meat was placed on skewers and cooked as well. Once it was all prepared, the participants were then able to sit and enjoy this special treat. And a treat it was. Their daily meals consisted mainly of just bread and vegetables. Sometimes not even that. Sometimes the crops wouldn't provide or a family may struggle if a citizen farmer went to war, leaving the fields untended. So these special occasions provided treats indeed. These sacrifices took place in large and small gatherings. Some were entire cities, others small communities. They also involved a variety of animals, some large, some small. Naturally, the larger animals were preferred. Smaller animals may have been burned entirely with no meat left to eat. So in those cases, you could say the festive food theme only applied to what the gods received. The animals used included bulls, oxen, cows, sheep, which seems to have been the most common, goats, pigs, with piglets being the cheapest animals, and poultry. You can see where some of the smaller ones might not have had any meat left after the offering to the gods. And which god or gods were present for the sacrifice varied based on the reason for the sacrifice. Whatever the case, everyone present was involved. Men, women, and children, too. This gathering and sense of togetherness, everyone coming together for this special occasion and partaking in food they didn't otherwise get to enjoy. This is a big part of our festive food theme. So now you know how sacrifices generally worked and where the food comes in. Now let's look at some of the festivals that held these sacrifices. The Panathenaea is one such festival along with the Great Panathenaea that took place once every four years. The festival took place in Athens to celebrate and honor Athena, who was, of course, the patron goddess of Athens. 
The core of this festival was a great procession depicted on the Parthenon frieze, which I'll upload for you to see. Members of all segments of Athenian society were represented and marched through the Agora into the Acropolis. For the great Panathenaea, a special robe called the Panathenaic robe, which depicted scenes of the battle between gods and giants, was brought in the procession to be presented to Athena. Athletic and musical competitions were added to the festival as well, with prizes of money or olive oil in special Panathenaic amphoras given out to the winners. All of this took place over several days. In both versions, multiple large sacrifices took place at the climax of the festival. To provide meat for so many, it took multiple sacrifices, but the general process was still the same. And when it was done, everyone got to enjoy this meat as a special treat. As for the distribution of this meat, it was probably according to deme, that is, territorial districts or villages. The amount may have been determined by the number of people in each deme who attended the procession. Whatever the case, they got to enjoy this meal together. Not only about Athena, it was also about solidarity. Everyone coming together and being a part of something that strengthened their bonds as a community, no matter what part of society they were from. And this, of course, included that special food. On a smaller scale, those deems I mentioned had festivals of their own. Certainly not as grand as the big festivals in Athens, but still following some similar patterns. The number of festivals varied from deem to deem, breaking from the bigger festivals after which the months were named. One such deem for which we have available records is Urkaya. The primary source of information is the Lex Scara, or Sacred Law. It lists a total of 59 annual sacrifices to a total of 46 divinities. Now these aren't just gods, but heroes and nymphs as well. Zeus and Athena were among the most frequent, and Apollo was common as well. Archaea actually had an acropolis of its own within the village itself, a symbol of how important this deem most likely was. Here they worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the divinities worshipped in Athens, as well as the various, sometimes obscure divinities they worshipped. And with all these sacrifices, we again find that special meat being consumed. More special food during an event of honoring the gods and bringing together the local community. You notice this is a theme here in Greece. Festivals, gods, solidarity, food, and sometimes sacrifices. Anthesteria involved a special consumption of wine in which even slaves participated. The Panathenaea involved all parts of society, and the Deem festivals brought their people together. There's a lot of solidarity to be found in these festivals, both great and small. And with that, people eating together. Not necessarily in the way we normally imagine it, but there as it fit with their society. Something about people gathering seems to just naturally bring about some sort of food, whether that food is the focus of the gathering or just simply being eaten during the event. Since the festivals mostly share the same general idea of sacrifice and consumption of the sacrifice, let's move on to other places we find food that fits our theme, like weddings. Of course, weddings in ancient Greece were a lot different from what we have today, and even varied among different areas of Greece. Sparta, for example, had marriage practices that were different from Athens. Athenian weddings had a more ceremonial feel than their Spartan counterparts. 
That isn't to say there weren't some similarities, however small. For example, the groom's best friend has a role. Not really the same as you might think of with a modern-day best man, but a small similarity all the same. Still, don't think this as an event of love. It wasn't. It was an arrangement. A transfer of the bride from her father to her husband. If you think about it, echoes of that live on even in modern weddings. In so many weddings, you hear the line, Who gives this woman to marry this man? Or something similar. And traditionally, it would be the father who answered, though it varies from bride to bride. I'm not saying this is where that line came from, but I'm not saying it's not either. Anyway, weddings are a theme for another month and I'm getting off track. Back to the food. Naturally, the gods were involved with weddings. Artemis was associated with the bride's transition to womanhood, Hera with the institution of marriage itself, and Aphrodite with the erotic aspect. Here there were sacrifices made, which varied in nature from place to place, but were present all over. On the wedding day, a wedding feast was held at the father of the bride's home. Curiously, only the men would eat first while the women waited. The women wouldn't even sit down. Once they were done, the women had their turn at the food. Though they did not eat at the same time, this celebration was still a gathering around the food, for which the bride's family, or at least her father, was responsible. No doubt this feast or banquet involved special foods they didn't always have, and it was at this time that the groom likely lifted the bride's veil, which was, for reasons I don't want to detail today, the first time he saw her, after the wedding had already happened. Lifting the veil at this time was, in fact, a ceremony of its own. Over in Sparta, we find the world's first known stag parties, also known as bachelor parties. Really, they were probably quite similar to today. Drinking and partying, possibly some toasts made to the groom, probably singing as well. A celebration of the groom's last day as a bachelor among his male friends and comrades, bonding and promises that he would not leave them as he entered married life. And it was all with plenty of food, though I couldn't find the specifics on what foods may have been gathered for this special feast. Now, this is totally and completely unrelated to the festive food theme. It belongs in the theme about wedding traditions, but I just can't leave it out. After the wedding and the feast was done, the newlyweds went to the husband's home. There, the bride was introduced into the home, and they consummated the marriage in the bridal chamber. Now this is the wild part. While they consummated the marriage, their friends would sing outside. That's right. While the newlyweds were having sex for the first time, their friends were singing Epithalamia, or a song celebrating a wedding, just outside. Can you imagine? I thought it was strange and funny all at the same time and just had to mention it. Moving back on track. With ancient Greece, including a special nod to Sparta, we found not just sacrifices, but also feasts involved with weddings, even the first stag parties, which also involved food. So now we've celebrated, and we've married. Let's start mourning. Sticking with the classical period, death was ever-present and the afterlife wasn't feared. Over time, different funerary practices became prominent. Additionally, the location and cause of death was taken into consideration. Different from what you typically see today, Funeral rites were considered a necessity. In fact, it was an insult to dignity if they weren't performed. 
they were believed to affect the deceased's journey to the afterlife. Sound kind of familiar from last month? Prior to this period, there was an important man named Solon who lived from 630 to 560 BCE. During his time in power, he instituted a series of reforms. Relevant to us today is what he did regarding funerals. He saw a pattern of the rich using funerals to display their wealth. Elaborate processions, burials, banquets, and all other manner of public spectacle. Feeling that this would only create tension in Athens, he moved to limit that extravagance. Limits on money spent, for example. Limits on the number of mourners who could attend. Even a limitation on how much grief the mourners could publicly show. Processions were held before dawn, while the formal portion of the funeral was limited to the home and the graveside. With that in mind, let's look at what the funerals were like, including where the food comes in. For the different forms of death, funerals were always conducted. Inhumation and cremation were both common, and there didn't seem to be any distinction with regard to beliefs about death and the afterlife, so they were often found at the same time within individual communities. For those who died in battle, they were cremated on the battlefield and the ashes brought back to Athens for a special annual ceremony. The three-day funeral process for inhumation began with the corpse being laid out in a house, usually that of the next of kin. This was done by close female relatives. A ritual bathing, anointing, dressing, and garlanding were all performed by these relatives before the body was laid out for others to see. Friends and family then came to pay last respects. Women dressed in black beat their chests and sang a ritual lament as was typical for this day. Curiously, death was considered to be a pollutant both to the house and to the mourners themselves. To counter this, spring water was placed outside as both a warning and a way for mourners to cleanse themselves as they left. On the third day, the funeral procession took place. Remember, this had to be done before dawn, according to Solon's reforms. The body was covered in a shroud for this part of the funeral. When they arrived at the grave, offerings were made and then wine was poured for the mourners present. Finally, we're reaching the presence of food. The wine was consumed at the grave itself, but the food would certainly have taken place back at the home. While I cannot find specifics on the food consumed, it was likely special to some extent compared to the daily diet. This was, after all, a somber event that was at least partially meant to help the deceased in the afterlife. And so they gathered around this banquet on the final day of the funeral. Those who were cremated were also given a version of these funeral rites, though obviously they didn't have a displayed body. And the banquet still took place among their friends and loved ones as well. That was one of the staples of these rites. So we've had food present as part of multiple special occasions, sacrifices and festivals, weddings, stag parties, and funerals. There's certainly more to be found, but I feel like this is a good stopping point. And that's our first festive food episode. Not all festive, of course, but you see where we're going with this. It's all about food being present during special occasions, happy or sad, where people gather together. Next week, we're going to visit the Ottoman Empire, where you can be sure of one thing. There will be coffee. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.